Hebrews chapter 6. All right, part of what we're doing as we travel through this book together is we're, is we're learning how to enjoy our Bibles, right? When you study through a book of the Bible, you're validating the fact that God spoke to us in a particular way. So not random little phrases that we're grabbing out of nowhere and we're going to try and interact with them. God spoke in the Bible. And he continues to speak to us. I don't, I don't mean that to sound as though, hey, this is the only place you can hear God speak. But this is the most sure word available to us. And it's written in a format. So there, there's, you know, this is part letter, part exhortation, part preached message that got written down is what Hebrews is. And so it's, it's traveling through some thoughts. And the construction of the ideas that are here matter. So one of the things I want us to pay attention to is you're going to see... The first two verses of what we interact here today is the Bible wanting something for us. And obviously the Bible's a book. It's the author of the Bible who wants something for us. So did you notice that sometimes you're reading the Bible? The Bible wants something. It has an agenda. It's messing with our world because it wants something. And it wants something for us. And it wants something primarily, first off, for the glory of God. But it wants something for us. And something is in the way. For these people. And so they're going to be offered an insight. So you have a desire followed by an insight. And if you'll pay attention to the Bible, that's often the construction you're interacting with. There's something about us knowing something that we haven't quite seen as clearly as we need to see it. So that's what this passage is going to do today. It's going to offer us something that maybe we haven't quite seen as clearly. I titled the, the message, you'll see what this Nothros word is, Curing Nothros Disease. Or scattered sheep and the seeking shepherd. Let's start reading in verse 11, Hebrews 6. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. To have the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish. That's the word nothros. You may not be that. But imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God, right, here's the insight. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, that's an insight. He patiently waited. He obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly. So God wanted to convince us of something. He did something in order to do that. He wanted to be more convincing to the heirs of the promise. The unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. You picking up on some of what God wants for you in this passage? You hear that? God wants full assurance of hope. He wants strong encouragement going off on the inside of us to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure 
and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray just for a moment. Oh Lord, we sometimes lose sight of just something really simple. You want things for us. No matter where we are, what we're experiencing, what our lives have or don't have, what we're confused by, what we wish was different, no matter where we find ourselves, Lord, the truth remains, you want things for us. Lord, would you let that settle in on our hearts today? You want something for me right now in the midst of my story, where I am, what I'm feeling. You want things for me. So Lord, help us to receive the insight that is in this word today that will help us to receive the things that you want for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, here's the gravitational center. The reason why this passage exists is because there is this need to move from this sluggish location, which is the word nothros in the original language. If you're not familiar, the Bible's not written in English originally. So there is the Greek language originally that wrote uh, this passage was... Using some words, right? Now, I want to I detail those words. But the goal in this passage is to move people from one emotional setting and experience of life, this sluggishness, to a different address, to one of earnestness. And so you see that. I want you to stop being this, but I want you to be this, right? So that's the, the location here. First address here, second address so the goal here is earnestness. And here's, here's what that word means. If you unpack it, spude in the Greek, it means to hasten something. It, it means to work. It means effort. It means zeal and seriousness and readiness and dedication, right? If you just came across that word being used in the Greek culture of the day, this is how that word would sound. The, the Jewish historian Josephus he used this word to mean concern and attentiveness, liking, involvement, desire, right? So that word, I mean, our English translation is a good translation, earnest. It's, it's, a, it's a sincerity of heart, an eagerness. It's not a casual, disconnected, uninterested, not getting our attention. It's, it's kind of obsessive. There's an obsessive heart here being offered to us. But there's a different condition of life being experienced by these people in the midst of their trials. And that's the word sluggish. Nothros. It means to be lazy or dull or slothful. Right? Some of our terminologies might be just, you know, I just don't, I don't know, man. I just feel so unmotivated. Lethargic. In a fog, right? And I know those words, because I, mean, I can remember passing through seasons of life in the church and, and, and big events that have happened to us together. You know, there was, a, there was a bit of a fog after Katrina. I remember us as pastors talking about how do we help people that are sort of like deer in the headlights, right? I mean, life had all of a sudden come to this moment where everything was shut down and 
everybody had to figure out how to reinvent their life and where to live. And am I going to stay here? Do I change jobs? And it was just, you just saw people numb. This different condition. It was not an earnest moment for many. It was, it was just a, a dull fog. I, I think the pandemic produced some moments like that, continues to produce moments like that. So to this feel is not foreign to us. And in some ways, I want to pull it into a common space of life experience, right? I wrote in your outline there, no thrust happens. It just does. And, you know, one of the things that we do when we, preaching is a proclamation. That's what it's supposed to feel like, right? So I'm not just having a conversation with you this morning. I'm proclaiming something. So I'm going to say it with an attitude, it's going to have a little intensity and force and heat behind it. Part of what preaching is trying to do, it's trying to convince you of something. So I'm up here to make an argument. And when you preach something, you, know, you can stand some things up in a really, really strong way. And unfortunately, even though the messages are plenty long enough here, you can't get to everything. And you can't say everything that needs to be said about everything. Right? So there's power in the Bible. There is radical transformation in what God does in his purpose, in saving us, in doing things in us, in giving us his very life as the power source for who we're going to be and the decisions that we're going to make. Sin is in this world, but God is in us. And so all those things can produce this recipe for what what are you expecting that to look like? So at any given moment, I, I I would be right to make it sound as though the Christian life is this life of victory and power over everything the enemy could ever do in this world, every ounce of sin that exists in this world, and I would be exactly right to tell it to you that way. But nothros is in the Bible too. People who walk with God, experiencing something that doesn't feel like everything's going great, everything's working, This incredible power of God that's come to me, it's fixed everything in my life. I feel right all the time. That's not true, is it? And and if you're really honest with the Bible, the Bible doesn't even sound that way. I mean, when you understand, why do I even have the book of Hebrews? Well, because there was a situation going on in people's lives that needed to be addressed. And God wrote into it. And he used the writing of this letter, this exhortation of Hebrews to address a real life situation. All right, now now fill in some of the details here and make it not quite so mysterious. This is somewhere around 60 AD when this is being written. The, The trips that planted churches in the New Testament were about only a decade before this. So... You maybe have got a 10 or 15 year window where people are newborn, coming to faith, churches are springing up, and there's this new church and that new church, and, and you know, things were happening before even Paul and Barnabas went off on the first missionary journey. But this is not an old setting. These are people who've experienced the joy of having been saved maybe in the last 10 years. And they're 10 years in to live in their life, and they need to hear this. They need somebody to honestly speak to them about the fact that, hey, your life feels kind of no-throws right now, doesn't it? Sluggish, lazy, disinterested, disconnected. Why would you have to say that to Christians? Because Christians can be sluggish, lazy, slothful, 
unmotivated, disconnected. And let me just give you a quick run through history here. They're not the only church who has this issue in the first century, right? Uh, I think the Hall of Fame church for me, I think I would say this. Antioch's a pretty Hall of Fame church in the New Testament. But uh, the church in Ephesus is a Hall of Fame church for me. Some of the richest revelation that we get in the book of Ephesus is written to them. But you have a church in Ephesus that's started by the Apostle Paul. So, you know, if you're going to have the ultimate guy to start something, he's my guy. And then he's going to not just kind of be there shortly, get things going, and then move on. He's going to be there for about three years. He's going to personally teach and disciple the people in this church for three years. And then he's going to raise up his protege and send him to be the pastor. Timothy is going to be the pastor in Ephesus. So you think if any church got off on the right foot, it's the church in Ephesus. These are your all-star cast of Christians. And then the apostle John is going to write this just a couple of decades later towards the end of the first century. And Revelation 2 says, but I have this against you, Ephesians, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. It, does that blow your mind a little bit? The Hall of Fame church in Ephesus didn't make it out of the first century without their heart's affections becoming sluggish, slow toward God and unmotivated. This is a little bit more common than you might expect. Right, if I fast forward, if you move through church history and you study revivals and you find places where revivals happened, uh, there's a reason why things had to be revived. They were asleep, right? Some kind of fresh jolt needed to come to them to, to move them out of their setting, right? The, the great awakenings that, that characterize our nation. God moving in America, right? This might surprise you. The colonies in America get settled by what people seeking religious freedom and expression. And they form the ideas that form our nation. But it might shock you to know how busy these little colonists got in terms of whether they participated in their churches or not. Because you would assume everybody went to church. Not so. Roger Fink and Rodney Stark wrote a book called The Churching of America. They said the colonies did not exude universal piety. There was a general agreement that in the colonial period, no more than 10 to 20% of the population actually belonged to a church. Does that surprise you? It surprises me. I guess they found things to get busy with too, right? What were they doing on Sunday rather than gathering with the body of Christ? Well, I'm, I'm sure they were, they were settling life. They were, they were settlers in many ways. They were colonizers. They were, they were building their homes and, and they were tending to their crops and they were taking care of life's activities. And they, they probably had travel ball with their kids. Okay, well, maybe not that, but everything else they did have, right? They had stuff going on on Sundays too. And it became interesting to participate in the church and the great awakening was a need in the 1740s you have this moment and jonathan edwards and others come on the scene and preaching and god shows up and awakens them out of this nothros condition that had set into their lives but that's not the last great awakening even in our own country 
because it, it didn't last that long. And then you had another season where another awakening needed to happen. But, you know, if you're a nerd of history, you're going to remember the next thing that begins to happen in our world is uh, the Age of Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution. Those two things are going to happen in the 1700s into the 1800s. And the Age of Enlightenment is a philosophical shift. It is the constant presentation to people to get them to think differently about their lives, about what is ultimate, how to explain your life, what's the role of science in explaining your life, how to think and draw conclusions philosophically. So new ideas have come into the world. And then don't underestimate this. This was massive. The Industrial Revolution was a massive shift in the way people lived their lives. Right? There was a moment in which most people, and this is most of the history of the planet, they lived in more of an agricultural setting. And so they were spread out more. They, they, they lived in the country. And they did farm life. And the pace, the activity, the exposure to other people is different when you live there versus when industrialization comes along and builds factories and mechanisms that now everybody lives within arm's reach of those factories. Now you've created urbanization. Now everybody lives right next door to each other. And the ideas get exchanged differently when that happens, doesn't it? You're not like seeing your neighbor rarely. Every once in a while, we bump into somebody. No, no, no. You're living with them now. They're in the same building with you. And you're crowded into these settings. So now the exchange of ideas is crazy fast. Or at least it's faster, right? So now you need another awakening, which we, our second great awakening, waking people up from this sluggishness in the church takes place in the 1800s. That's the second great awakening. But it's not the last one, right? The Pentecostal revival that's going to come right around the turn of the 1800s into the 1900s. You're going to get yet another awakening and another awakening in the last century. And does it surprise us that maybe today we would be in a place where we need some kind of awakening yet again. The shift that has happened in our world, in our lifetime, you have a massive philosophical shift taking place, a massive philosophical shift. You're seeing it pop up in the, the rise of the individual, the redesign of everything. Can I just tell you, Morris Bart hasn't been around forever. No insult to Morris. I don't know if Morris watches, but this no insult to Morris or any of you guys who are attorneys. Um, but that approach to life has flourished. That approach to legal issues has flourished under the idea that it's the individual's rights that outweigh everybody else's. So wait, what did you do to this guy? I'm going to sue you. What did your company do to this guy? I'm going to sue you. What did your nation do? I'm going to sue you. And so that is a philosophical issue that hasn't always been around, but it's flourishing today because it fits in the idea that the most important thing for you to be thinking about is you. You need some you time. Anybody ever told you that? Can I just tell you that your grandparents have no idea what that means? They just chronically lived for other people, for their extended family. They, they live for their community. You know, JFK could not stand in front of anybody and give his speech today. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. You understand how upside down that is today? 
Wait, wait, are you saying that the individual serves something bigger than himself? Thank you, JFK. That's exactly what he was saying. Well, that doesn't work today. Because now the right of the individual sits at the center of everything. And, and don't for a second think this is not crawling around inside of our bloodstream. It is. So you add that to what industrialization did in the second great awakening. Today, we don't have industrialization. We have the digital age. What came with this shift of philosophy is a device in your pocket. And just like the industrial revolution changed the way people do life, the digital age changed the way we do life, doesn't it? We do life differently now that we have these devices in our pockets. And so we're both urbanized and we're digitized and we share information like nobody's business. So if there's a bad philosophy out there, it's everywhere and you see it constantly and you stop hearing it. And it seeps into us. And then we try to walk with God. And what ends up is you have this massive impact on people's awakening toward God. We become dull. Nothros. We catch a Nothros disease. Colin Hansen wrote the foreword for the book, The Great Dechurching. I've mentioned it before. It's a book written in this past summer about the de-churching of America, people leaving church. He said, we're living amid the largest and fastest transformation of religion in American history. What Jim Davis and Michael Graham describe as the great de-churching, a shift of 40 million people who used to be regularly in church are almost never in church now. And that happened in just 25 years. So listen, you know, church people, as those who follow God, recognizing the kingdom of God coming among us, we're called to notice some things in this world. We're not called just to live in this planet. We're called to notice some things. The whole world took notice that there was this virus that started and spread throughout the world called COVID. It got all of our attention. Everybody paid attention to it. You couldn't bump into a human being anywhere and say, hey, you ever heard of COVID? And have anybody go, no, what's that? They would be able to talk at length about that. Christians need to recognize there's, there's another virus spiritually out there called Nothros. You ever heard of that? It has the same kind of impact on global Christianity as COVID has had. It's out there. Be ready. You are going to face it. I am going to face it. You're going to face forces that get under your skin and begin to affect you in ways that the, the manifestation of it, the symptoms of it are sluggishness, disinterest, lack of motivation. You know, I don't know. I just don't feel towards something, right? Well, this is in our world. This is in the Christian universe. And if all of us are humble enough, we all would have to acknowledge we all know something about it. Every one of us. Can, can I just appeal to those of you who act like you don't know anything about this? Who kind of have that cowboy faith that sounds like you show up to a small group meeting and somebody's sharing about their struggle and you kind of pull that trump card out on them and you tell them, well, I don't ever. 
I have my prayer time with Jesus every morning and man, I'm just, and I read 18 chapters of the Bible a day and just this publication that, oh, so the wheels never come off for you. You never lack motivation. Can I just tell you, I know, I know those people's stories. Can I just tell you the wheels are coming off for them too. They're just not letting you know that. And they feel like what they need to do is present a version of Christianity that never has dents in it. Can I just tell you the Bible didn't feel like it needed to do that? Because it, it does this, right? I met with somebody recently and he shared just struggles that he was going through. And then he shared kind of how it feels when he shares it with others. Can, can I just rescue us from not being this kind of church where somebody shares with you something that sounds like, hey, I don't know about you, but this ain't working. It ain't working for me, man. And we all panic. Like, oh my gosh. Do you, do you mean like my faith may not be real and God could fail and this isn't true? And we panic and we're like, I got to get you to stop saying that as fast as possible. So let me tell you this, let me tell you that. And then you got to respond to me really quickly because I can't stand the idea that you're acting like this doesn't work. Can you find people in the Bible who acted that way? Yes, we're reading about them in Hebrews. They're acting like this doesn't work and something else has got their attention because that's got to be better than this. Do you know anybody who's done that? Have you ever done that? Have you ever walked in a space where life turned on you in such a way that you got confused, conflicted about what you thought about God, what you thought your life would be at this point, how you thought it would feel? And you're kind of just, you're in a moment where you're kind of like, this ain't working. I've, I've done that, dude. Thanks for the suggestion. Thanks for that prayer verse. I've done that. Can, you, can I tell you how long I've been doing that? And the reality of Nothros is what you're experiencing. This is a real condition. And we don't have to be a church that acts like, oh, that doesn't really exist. Oh, no, it does exist. And the truth of God needs to find us in those moments. There will be unique seasons. And I believe the world is in a unique season. And I believe the body of Christ is in a unique season. And it wouldn't be unusual if that unique season is finding us today in, a, in an interesting place. I put a quote in here from a fellow named James Smith. He wrote an interesting book called How to Inhabit Time. Understanding the past, facing the future, and living faithfully now. And he, and he highlights something that I hope we will catch. Not every moment in your life is the same. Not every moment of walking with Jesus is the same. You are not affected by every event and every day of your life in the same way. I am pretty sure that we don't have a ton of background on these Hebrews. They had days that were different than this. Every day was not Nothros for them. But this day is. And they're having to combat that moment. Listen to what James Smith says. He says, I'm thinking of a kind of temporal disorientation. It's unrecognized because it's, it's buried and hidden by the illusion of being above the fray, immune to history, surfing time rather than being immersed and battered by its waves, right? Some Christians are kind of like, am I allowed to say that? I'm being battered by the waves of my life right now. Can I say that? Does that sound like something that, what's wrong with you, man, as a, as a Christian? Because remember, why is this passage we're interacting with introducing us to something that's called the anchor of our soul? Because seas are calm, there's a gentle breeze blowing in your face. 
No, no, these guys need an anchor because they're being battered in this moment. And the hope for them is not to deny the fact that the waves are really, really big right now and beating on my ship. No, that's not their hope. Their hope is to find the anchor that they stick in the ground that's going to hold on to them in the midst of that storm. They're not asked to deny their storm. They're just asked to anchor to something more sure. A lot of contemporary Christianity suffers from spiritual dyschronometria. And if you don't know what that term means, Phil would like to talk to you about it this morning. <clears throat> yeah, Phil was mocking me because he went in advance and read the notes uh, yesterday and he was making fun of me because I wanted to introduce you to the word dyschronometria. And you're going to use it like every day for the rest of your lives now. I realize that. A lot of contemporary Christianity suffers from spiritual dyschronometria, an inability to keep time, a lack of awareness of what time it is. What we need to counter spiritual dyschronometria and the fiction of no when, Christian no when is kind of like a time to nowhere, kind of like the fact that, hey, I'm nowhere. Oh, well, I'm no when in time. Well, no, no, you are actually in a particular place in time. Is a renewed temporal awareness, a spiritual timekeeping that is attuned to the texture of history, the vicissitudes of life and the tempo of the spirit. Spiritual timekeeping is fundamentally a matter of awakening to our embeddedness in history and attending to our temporality, both individually and collectively. Right, when you walk out of this building today, and you go to do life, in this sense, I'm asking, do, do you know what time it is? Do you discern the times in which you're living? And then some of that's individual. You're in an individual season of your life that's not shared by everybody else in this room. Something's happened. Something's changed. You've gone through something. You've had an experience. Something tragic has touched your life. Something prolonged has finally run its course to where you are worn out by it right now. So you're in that moment. It's not the beginning of that moment, right? It's, it's 27 years of that moment. And, and now it's come to ripen a little differently. That's the time. It's not day one of this. It's been around a long time. Or it's sudden and it's, it's shifted your life into a category where suddenly you got no answers. You got no answers for anything right now. That's a different time for you individually. Do, do you know you're in a different time? Because if you don't, you're going to feel uniquely overwhelmed by that moment. But then you and I live in a moment in history. Things are going on around us. This shift to the digital age, it's massive. The types of ideas that are influencing us, they're, they're not what generations faced exactly the same way we are in the past. The way you feel about your life, the, the place our nation is in, all these things. What is God doing on planet Earth? When you visit God's history, there are moments of incredible outpouring of blessing. And there are also moments of great judgment that God brings into his world. What time is it right now? What is God doing in this moment? That's huge and important. As a matter of fact, the verses right before this were about being mature and having our senses trained to discern good and evil. Right? So there's a moment that we're living in. Right? 
But there's a problem being cured in this passage, that, that nothros problem, right? So I want, I want to show us the insight into how does God jump into this moment that's produced this disaffection in us? And what does he do to get us from there to earnestness and all that that word means? Well, let me give you a quick rundown on how I think God does that that's in this passage. But Ezekiel had a moment a particular moment. Ezekiel is a prophet who shows up, and you can pretty much guarantee if you're reading from the Old Testament prophets, they're there for a reason. They are showing up in a moment. Matter of fact, none of them show up when, hey, just here to say, way to go, guys. Everything's going great. God is so pleased, so happy in heaven for you. Just came down to let you know that I'll be going back up to heaven now. Right? That's not who the prophets are. The prophets show up in Nothros moments. They show up to speak into disaffection and wandering and disconnection. So what you find in this moment is a, a people in Ezekiel's day have been scattered. Literally, they've gone into exile. Judgment has come, and they are now exiled in a different location. They are literally scattered into another place. And listen to what God says through Ezekiel in chapter 34, verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. Don't move too quickly past that thought. Right here is this land of Nothros, this condition that we're in. How are we going to get from here to earnestness? How, how's that going to happen? I feel so unmotivated. I, you know, I, I know this is not where I'm supposed to be. And even I'm embarrassed to say I haven't read my Bible in forever. I'm just, I haven't been to church. I'm just not interested I know I'm not supposed to say that. How am I going to get interested to move from here to there? Well, pay careful attention. Where does it start? With you or with God? I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them. From all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Do you catch something there? On a day of thick clouds and darkness. As opposed to the day when the clouds weren't quite as menacing and threatening and dark. Every day is not the same. And when those days come... They can have a dispersing, scattering impact on God's people. And these dark days did. Verse 13. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. Listen, I... I I think we are living in the darkest times that any of us have lived through. I think we're living in the darkest times that many have seen in centuries, perhaps. And I, I think that gathering clouds, if I had to trace some gathering ideas and influence, I think the gathering clouds in the 60s and 70s put in place some things that are being answered today, some philosophies, some detachment, some rejection of authority that was making room for the land that we live in today. And then the 80s and the 90s showed up 
and prosperity for everybody was just given out. Everybody gets to win. Here, invest in the stock market. You're going to make so much stinking money. Buy property. It's going to go up and up and up in value. And since the 80s, we really haven't seen an economic downturn. Only blips. Only blips, right? My dad lived through the Depression. So they explain life a little differently when you were born in 1918 than those of us who have lived through, oh, remember that little glitch in 2009? Yeah. Do you remember how long it lasted? Not very long, right? A year and the stock market's back, baby. Here we go again. And then we push through into the digital age. More clouds gathered and it got darker. And then in about 2019, You ever been in that moment where a storm comes up and it's like the sky turns like green and you're wondering whether, are we about to have a tornado? And you're in the middle of the day, but it is so weird and dark. Welcome to 2020. I think the darkness came into the world in which we live in such a drastic way. I think it's still here. And it is so disorienting and so effective in people's lives. Well, clouds and darkness scatter the people of God. That's what this passage says. And I think you write a book called Dechurching because that's exactly what's happened. I think you and I live in a time that we need to pay attention to that has scattered God's people by making them less than interested and unmotivated and distracted and unaffected in a sense of zeal for whatever God's doing next is sometimes hard to find in such a dark moment. Look at what Hebrews says in chapter 6, verse 11. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be nothros anymore. But instead, you may be earnest. There may be something going off on the inside of you, this sense of zeal and effort and activity and work and hastening and eagerness. That's a different setting than what they've been experiencing, right? John Piper says, God wants you to have the full assurance of hope. No weak and flimsy hope, but a strong, full, confident hope lest you become sluggish or dull. And begin to think that the Christian hope, listen, is not as real as the hopes offered by the world. When you get sluggish, you are particularly vulnerable to some other hope being advertised to you. He says that's the danger. This book of Hebrews, this book warns against over and over. Don't be sluggish in the way you fight to keep your hope strong and vivid and compelling and alluring. And that's the insight we're about to get, right? So you have this, I want you to go from sluggishness to earnestness. I want you to move from here to here. Oh, and by the way, let me tell you about Abraham real quick. This is the flow of thought that's in this passage. So you're about to get an insight that's going to help explain how you get from here to here. And that's what we find in verse 13. And in your outline, I've colorized some things because I want you to see three particular things in this solution. All right, so in verse 12, that you may not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit promises. So two things got introduced to us. Trying to get you out of sluggishness, I need to talk to you about faith. And I need to talk to you about patience. 
And then we keep reading in verse 13. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Now you're seeing something here. I'm not going to get to two of these, okay? So just see it from a distance and enjoy it in your own private devotion times. This issue of faith, when God goes to awaken something of faith in us, I love the way you get a lesson in how he does it. He, he, he doesn't speak to you about your faith. He speaks to you about himself. He reveals more of himself to you, right? Because the most important thing about faith is not faith. It's the object of our faith. So you, you learn a little bit something about, hey, God saying, hey, your faith is a problem. Over here in the land of sluggishness, your faith is a problem. Uh, how am I going to do that? Well, I'm going to reveal something to you about myself. I'm the God who made promises. And I swore by myself saying, surely I will bless you and I will multiply you. I put my name on this, right? And thus Abraham, now here's the other word that got mentioned, patience. Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Well, thanks for throwing that in because maybe some of us right now aren't inheriting the promise, not because you're not going to, but because you're just waiting. And there's nothing wrong with waiting. As a matter of fact, it's strategic and good. He says, for people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly, what's he trying to convince? He's trying to convince my faith. To the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. And that by two unchangeable things, which is impossible for God to lie. God is saying something that I'm called on to believe. And maybe you would say something like, <clears throat> no, I swear on my mother. All right? You'd say something like that? Maybe you wouldn't. But you got some kind of little phrase that say, hey, no, this isn't just some garden generic saying I'm saying. It's like, no, no, no. <clears throat> I'm telling you this is the truth. That's what God does here. But he can't swear on his mother, right? So he swears on himself. I'm going to do this for you. I swear by my own nature. I'm going to do this. So you get God leaning in saying, I know that your faith is going to have some wobbly moments, but let me tell you why you should believe what I'm saying to you. Because it's me saying it to you. Because of who I am. I give you my word. You know who I am. And then he brings up this issue of hope. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain. <clears throat> All right. So to get from here to here, three things are going to get introduced to us in this enlightenment moment, right? Faith, patience, and hope. They're all related to each other. And for you to get from here to here, those three things have got to be in play and God's addressing them in our lives. I'm just only going to address patience because that's our favorite one, isn't it? Of all these, I'm only going to address patience this morning. So God is going to inform us. He's going to give us an insight. He's going to have that V8 moment. It's like, oh, 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 that's what's going on. That's what I hope happens to us this morning. That's what God is doing, right? So number one, informing our patience. I think I wrote this out in your outline. Simple illustration. Uh, it is quite likely, as modern Americans... That our expectation about doing life are more informed by making Hershey's chocolate milk than by making fine wine. I use Hershey's. Some of you guys are Nesquik people. You got the little bunny, right? Got a little scoop it out. 
stir it up kind of a thing. We can be expecting that spirituality is a combination of my decision and instantaneous experiences. We're Americans. We do fast food. We do fast everything. That trains us for something, right? So my expectation is, hey, I'm going to do something significant. And then immediately I'm going to experience the outcome of that. Now, without realizing it, that's the pattern of our life. So waiting is not something we do well. So it's almost as though we've kind of got this chocolate milk mentality. It's like, hey, I want, you know, here's a scoop of Bible reading, a scoop of I went to church four times in a row, a scoop of something, and I put it in and I just stir it up. And instantly, I got chocolate milk. How many of you guys know you can't make wine that way? You can crush grapes as fast as you can crush grapes. You can extract juice as fast as you can extract juice. But the fermentation process of sticking that grape juice into a barrel in just the right humidity, in just the right conditions, none of that will do anything by itself. You have to add time. Now, why do I get that when it comes to making wine? But I don't get that when it comes to faith and hope that you just can't add in hey thanks for coming to church today do you you think you came today and that's gonna all that's all you need for your hope to be at some vivid amazing location and place um your hope's gonna need some time it's gonna need faith and patience not just uh, i read my bible today Remember that word endurance? It's been advertised all throughout Hebrews to us. Hebrews 10, verse 36, eventually we'll get there. It says, for you have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And I'm interested in that. And you are too. I want what God has promised. Oh, well, you have need of endurance. If you want to receive that from God, if you want what God has in mind for you, because God is saying, I want things for you. Okay, well, if you want what God has, you have need of endurance. Because you're not getting it on this side of endurance. You're going to get it on that side of endurance. It's just a fact, right? It's a spiritual reality. It's kind of like you can't go sit with a great historic vineyard and, and say, why does it take so long to make this stinking wine? Hey, hey, have you guys heard of chocolate milk? I mean, you can't do that, can you? It doesn't work. And in God's plan, it doesn't work. Hebrews 12, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. What is looking to Jesus going to do? It's going to give us insights, isn't it? It's going to give us revelation about things that we didn't know, but we needed in order to run the race in endurance. It's exactly the pattern you see here in Hebrews. Endurance is needed for the purpose of God to become all that it's supposed to be. But I need to see something about Jesus if I'm going to endure. James Smith says this, the church is a people of the future, a kingdom come community that is always learning anew how to wait. Oh, don't you love that? (laughs) Did anybody catch that in the fine print when you signed on? You're joining a community that's always learning a new lesson in how to wait. Uh, this part of me doesn't care for that. I wrote in your outline, you will live in perpetual conflict with life. 
if you have erased the concept of endurance from your life's pursuits. Can you hold on to that for a second? Every day, every moment you interpret, everything you're going through, you will be at odds with. Because it's just taking too long. And for us, everything feels like it's taking too long, right? But God says, hey, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Right? When you get from here to here, you've got to be ready for this to take time. Faith and patience. Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Listen, in, endurance is not optional. There is not available to any of us. You know, here, here's, here's one version of the Christian life. Here's another one. This one, you don't have to do the endurance thing in. It, it, it's just, it feels different. You won't have to wait and wait patiently. There is no such option in how God operates in this world. He highlights this reality. I remember that moment we saw earlier for Ezekiel. There was a day of great clouds and darkness that came. And, and that, that day was the judgment of God. This was the people of God had become so nothrous and so wayward and so disaffectioned in their hearts that God brought judgment on Jerusalem, awakens Nebuchadnezzar to come and put a siege around the city and horrible things are put into play in that moment. That's the moment Ezekiel lived in when the people of God got scattered. Well, the other prophet who shares that same time zone with him is Jeremiah. Ezekiel got scattered and exported to Babylon. Jeremiah stayed back in Jerusalem and walked amongst the horror of what Jerusalem had become. And he says this, Lamentations 3, verse 16. He, speaking of God here, has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished so as my hope from the lord and then interesting all over the place you find a relationship between endurance and hope endurance and hope there's something about what god does in us that endurance and hope are connected and related and when endurance goes away hope goes away with it as well and that's the problem the Hebrews were having. You have need of endurance. They didn't just need hope. They were in a crisis. The world was crashing in on them in the first century. But they didn't just need hope. They needed endurance. So let me just give you a quick background sketch. Why endurance matters. I'll do this quickly. I would say endurance is, is kind of like the fermentation process needs some time it needs some temperature so there's things that our faith is going to lay hold of that requires time and the process of god to get it where it's going right and and that fermentation process if you, if you will is endurance that's the title of what's happening there two passages to clarify and these are huge romans 5 
verse 1. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, do not treat lightly the fact that those words are connected to each other. Justified, made right with God, given the ability to stand completely free of any judgment against us, no condemnation before the holy God is connected to your faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And that grace means today's grace. The moment of grace I need on this Sunday, on this Monday. Grace in which we're standing. The, the grace to do life. But I received access to that. Listen, did you see how I received? By faith. I received access to that grace by faith in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So now, now I've heard about faith. And this passage is now going to pull hope into the equation as well. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. So there's my three words. All again in this passage. Faith and hope and patience are all hanging out together yet again. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. When I'm in a sluggish place, when I'm disaffectioned, lacking motivation, I'm dull, I don't respond well to the things of God, I have lost sight of hope. Now, I'm not going to go into this, but the hope that is beyond the curtain described here, I, I, I think it has to do with heaven. It does not just have to do with this week or paying your bills at the end of the month. Although the grace to get us there does have to do with that. So I think God's not ignoring that in any way. But there's a much bigger hope being spoken of here. And it's a hope you're going to have to wait for. It's a hope out of this world. It's the new heaven and the new earth kind of hope. And quite honestly, we're Americans. We kind of don't care about that. What have you done for me lately? What are you doing for me today? Why am I so convinced to shop for hope in temporary spaces? How did that happen to me? I don't know. How did it happen to you? Because the message I hear over and over and over and over again is how critically vital it is to my happiness that I have something temporary here to do something for me. And I lose place of the ultimate hope. But in this passage here in Romans, I have hate, hope and I have faith and I have endurance. You don't get to go straight to hope. So you don't get to stand over here in sluggish and say, hey, hey, what's, what's the direct line to hope? No, 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 you don't get to go straight to hope. You get to go through faith and then faith is going to take you on this long path of endurance. And then hope is going to begin to be experienced. And listen. That means faith is kind of important, isn't it? Because you did notice in here, there's two things in here. There's the grace to live life that our faith has given us access to. So let me just propose this possibility. What if your faith fails? 
Because you have access to this grace by faith. Well, what if that faith fails? By faith, we have been justified. We are justified by faith. What if that faith fails? Go ahead, you can think out loud. Well, then I guess we're not justified. I guess we don't have access to that grace. Your faith is kind of a big deal, isn't it? I mean, Hebrews kind of flirted with this thought. Of what, if, what if this fails? Well, 1 Peter chapter 1. Here's the behind the scenes. God is at work. The shepherd who comes after you, the one who initiates these things, the scattered sheep finder, he's at work in your faith. 1 Peter 1 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. What word did I just pick up by saying kept in heaven for you? Be patient. It's kept in heaven for you. Yeah, but I want it now. Well, this hope is kept in heaven for you. Be patient. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Guarded through faith. Guarded from what? Guarded from going astray. Guarded from giving up. Guarded from stopping believing this. Guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Is that the end of this week? Well, I guess it could be. But it wasn't the end of last week, was it? It wasn't a circumstance, a a temporary situation. It is God's big clock that I'm waiting for. So that the, I'm sorry, in this, in this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, and apparently it is, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now, right, see him, right, patience, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining one day the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. I don't have time to unpack this anymore. Um, There's a movement moment here. Out of sluggishness towards earnestness. It, It is a path of faith. It is a step of faith. And in that faith, there's this endurance thing happening. And that endurance thing is like going to the gym and getting a workout. The endurance is going to produce muscle strength in faith. And... That activity is what causes faith to not fail. So that I'm going to go all the way to the end. And I'm going to actually make it to the heavenly hope that God has given to me. No one will show up at this spot without faith. No one. That's why it's a little alarming to say, hey, I've lost my faith. Well, 
You can be in a no-throws position and God is at work in your faith and you can feel like your faith is really not where it needs to be. And that's disturbing, but that's okay. Because endurance is working at it to cause it to become something more and something more and something more and something more and something more. If necessary, even now you have been grieved by various trials, if necessary. Well, if you want your faith to go from here to there, can I just tell you? It's necessary. So here's how, here's how I want us to, to pray. I do this, you know, I've, I've, I've been educated that, you know, there's a God who loves me and happiness is part of a healthy life and I, I want the things that, that look good and they, make, they bring joy to me. I want those things. And so I can begin to design a prayer life that everything that starts to feel like difficulty intrusion, failure, disruption, suffering. I can feel like that's, that can't be from God. That can't be good. I, I just need to get that out of my life. God, and I just begin to have faith for that kind of stuff. But can, can you get this? If some of that stuff I'm asking God to get rid of in my life is actually the stuff that makes my faith preserved to the end, can, can you get this? I'm praying against the things God is doing in my life. Can you go with me there? And I, and I get when you pick up words like suffering and trial and you look at what people go through in the New Testament, it can feel like that needs to stop because suffering has some horrible experiences in it. But this is telling me for me to ever have hope I, I need a faith that endures. And God is at work behind the scenes, causing my faith to keep going. And some of what he's doing in my life feels painful and difficult. And my prayers are mostly about God, make that go away. God, heal this. God, change that. God, provide for this. God, touch this and make it go away. God, would you just cancel my gym membership, please? I don't like the workouts. God, I don't like the sweat. I don't like the muscle tear down. I don't like, I don't have to make time for that. God, would you just cancel my gym workout? God, in his mercy, says, no. Your faith is attached to your justification. Your faith is attached to the grace that comes into your life. I'm going to make sure your faith does not fail. And that's going to only happen through endurance. So you and I don't get to have this stuff apart from enduring in God. So here I want to do this. Maybe, Seth, go ahead and come up if you don't mind. You can just take a shortcut. You don't have to go the long way today. I'm going to just let you cut straight across here. <laughs> now you've had a busy weekend. You're probably a little tired. <laughs> All right, little insight God offered to us. Any of us finding ourselves, I'm in a place where life, its difficulties, its season has created this sense of detachment and distance and lack of motivation and sluggishness in me. I'm, I'm not super inspired to run toward God. All right, maybe that's where you are. But there's some faith and patience that's part of God moving you from here to earnestness. This place where you have zeal and energy and thrill for the things of God. So between these locations, there is faith 
and patience and hope getting readjusted in our lives. So I want you to do this with me this morning. I want you to think about something in particular. I'm going to kind of narrow this to pray about. Right now in your life, and maybe you got a couple of things. What are you needing patience in order to endure right now? What's touching your life that for you to do another day with that touch in your life, you need patience in order to endure that? Let some things come to mind. They may be the things that you've been asking God to undo and put to an end. And it may make sense that you've asked God for that for a lot of reasons. They may be the things that are causing you to put some distance between you and God. Something about your life that's been very confusing and you're wondering how God could be good and let this go on in your life. How this season could go on for this long if if God really loves me why would he let my life feel like this might it be that what you need this morning is not for that to go away you have need of endurance you have need of an ability to take another step in that and then maybe another one after that and another one after that because there's something incredible going on in each one of those steps your faith is becoming more and more preserved and vibrant so that you can cling to God and lay hold of the hope all the way at the end. There's a hope beyond whether you pay your bill. It's a bigger hope than that. It's a new heaven and a new earth hope. And God wants your hope there. And he wants faith to take you all the way to the end. So if these momentary afflictions are disrupting your life, do not lose sight God is having you endure something for the sake of your faith, laying hold of this hope. Let's stand up together. Lord, thank you. For every person here this morning who belongs to you, Lord, every person watching, Lord, you know the time in which we're living. Lord, you know for some this has been a a nothros time, a season, great discouragement of distance from you, of a sense of dullness and pulling back. A lack of energy toward you, Lord, that's, that's just kind of been where we've been. Lord, thank you that you are not aware. You are not caught off guard. You are not ignorant to clouds that gather and darkness that scatters us. Lord, you know this side of heaven, that will be part of our experience. Lord, you are the God who comes after us. You are the shepherd who seeks out your sheep who have been scattered on a cloudy and dark day. 
So Lord, for every person who can't figure out how to take the next step, Lord, would you let them know you're the one who takes the first step. You're the one moving toward them. Lord, Hebrews is your voice moving toward us, speaking to us in Nothros moments about a day of earnestness. And Lord, if you said that to us, it's because it's possible for us. So no matter how convincing the darkness has been, ah, oh Lord, your light is greater. You pierce into our darkness and you bring clarity and motivation and steps that bring us into a place of endurance by faith all the way to the day of hope fully received. But God, I just want to pray for some right now who they're more familiar with that sense of nothros than they are earnestness. Lord, that's where they are right now. Oh, Lord. God, we all know something about being in that place, Lord. We have lived in that space in our hearts, in our lives. God, we pray for every person who finds himself there this morning. Spirit of God, would you speak as you were through Hebrews? Would you speak by your spirit into hearts? Would you provide the first step? You're the one who comes to us. And when you come, you clarify where we are. Lord, would you provide the first step? Lord, would you provide just the first step, Lord? The step of return. Lord, I know there's some people perhaps watching that haven't been to church in months. God, life has created distance. Lord, would you provide the first step, God? Would you just go before us and give us one step, Lord? Just one step in front of us. That's a new step of faith. God, a step that awakens something in us and then something else in us and then something else in us. Lord, I pray for every person who came in here this week. They've been praying about something going away, something coming to an end, something stopping in their life. Lord, I pray right now for that thing that they're they're concerned about, perhaps resisting. Lord, would you make that thing an issue of endurance for us, Lord? Perhaps you already are. We're just not aware. God, would you cause that suffering, if necessary, to produce in us a faith that endures, a faith that takes another step, one more step, and one more step after that, Lord, and after we've taken 10 more years of steps, Lord, perhaps another decade, and then we're home with you, Lord, and we receive a hope that we cannot ever imagine in this world. Lord, you are doing a work. You're rescuing us from sluggishness, bringing us to earnestness by faith and patience and hope. God, we thank you for insights into what you do. Lord, thank you for explaining that to us in Hebrews. Now give us grace, Lord, to travel with you in these days ahead. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey guys, if, if, if you need some prayer this morning, maybe suffering is really, really off the charts right now for you. Could you come find the prayer team and come let them pray for you? Hey guys, one more thing I'm, I'm going to forget. The, uh, some of the leadership team in the church is headed to Sovereign Grace's pastor's conference this week. So if those guys who are attending the conference, if you guys could make your way up here, I'm going to ask the prayer team to pray for us. And you're welcome to join with us in that and pray for us this week as we're gone for the week. Oh, and then guest reception. Uh, We're always doing too much on the day we have guest receptions. But guest reception, we would love to get a chance to connect with you guys.
If you're new to the church, come tell us hello.